1: Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, I got a uh, podcast recommendation for you. It's the Catch and Kill podcast, hosted by Ronan Farrow. It's produced by Pineapple Street Studios, which is a uh, podcast company that I work at. Uh, And the show, I am biased, but I will just say, uh, it's pretty jaw-dropping it's all new interviews and a bunch of never-before-heard recordings um, with characters from Ronan's investigation over the last couple of years all the work that went into his Pulitzer Prize winning New Yorker reporting and uh, and then his best-selling book Catch and Kill there's a new episode out this week it's all about how uh, NBC killed Ronan's investigation into Harvey Weinstein Go check it out. The Catch and Kill podcast with Ronan Farrow, available wherever you are listening to this podcast, which starts right now. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky, I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lamer, Evan Radliffe. Gentlemen, hey. hello. Hey. Good we- afternoon on this snowy day, Max. Who, who is uh, Who's on the program? Uh, this week on the show, New York Times book critic, Parle Sagel and, uh, I had her on for a lot of reasons. One is, I th- uh, I like her book, Criticism. been have, reading it for a long have time. Have we
2: never had a book critic on this show? No.
1: For some reason, we've been- Cowardly. Sc- for shame. <laughs> <laughs> for some reason, we've been scared of them, but, uh, we got the, we got the right one. She's, uh, she's just a genuine joy to talk to. Incredibly thoughtful person, cares- a tremendous about about her work, and we talked about uh, how you do that job, which is the thing that I didn't really understand. Uh, but also, we talked about how you make choices in that job, like what you're going to review, and also uh, what's going to end up on lists. She works at the New York Times. I uh, understand
2: this episode has an Evan Ratliff tie-in.
1: Well, here's what I was going to say: uh, the New York Times they put out these year-end lists for books. It's a very big deal uh, if you make the list. So I asked her a little bit, like you know, about the pressure of making those lists and. Uh, the list was just announced. Evan Ratliff, the mastermind, on the list. Not any
2: kind of corruption with uh, her. Max. Do you think you got me on that list? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. The list came out before I talked to her. All oh, I'm saying oh, is that, that proves nothing. <laughs> we Can... all know how time time delay works. That's how you'd want it to work out if you worked this scheme.
1: What I'm what I'm saying here is Evan's book, The Mastermind, available now from all booksellers, made the New York Times. Best books of the year list, and it, and it's deserved. It's merited. Thanks, Max. I, I'm not going to lie. I was, I was pretty excited about that. Should be. Well, I was excited about this episode. Uh, probably came in the day after Thanksgiving, which is a very generous time to uh, come and hang out. And, uh, it was just, uh, it was a total pleasure to talk to her. If you got something to brag about, like your book made a uh, New York Times
2: end of the year list, you got to send out that email newsletter. You're not going to be able to uh, hit every person uh, individually and let them know. Yeah, Evan, uh, sign up for it with Mailchimp. They make it easy. They've got great integrations uh, to hook it into whatever you. I was uh, what was I using? I was checking out Webflow. Free uh, free ad for them there, but I'll tell you what, uh, Mailchimp integrates
1: you love an integration
2: i love it i love uh seamless integration and mailchimp's got them all you don't even have to start paying up until a certain number of people subscribe so uh sign up today for your next project thanks mailchimp and now here's max with parl Sagel.
1: hey parl
3: hey max thanks for having me
1: oh thanks for coming on the podcast Uh, I feel like there are many things for us to discuss this is going to be one of these conversations occasionally people come on the show and I have literally no idea how they do their job we're gonna we're gonna get into some real dumb questions is is what I'm driving at Uh, because I don't understand how you do your job I don't I don't know anything about it
3: about being a book critic
1: yeah nothing I got nothing.
3: What could be more self-explanatory? They publish the books, <laughs> I read them, and write about them. Uh, but I don't know.
1: I have no idea about uh, how it works. But so mm. we're, I want to talk about that. But mm. we're in uh, what I believe to be like an, potentially an interesting moment in the calendar year for mm-hmm. a book critic because mm-hmm. it's list season, mm-hmm. and uh, the New York Times just put out their top ten books of the year and a hundred books to read and all of these things. And uh, and I have a couple of friends who mm-hmm. publish books. In 2019, uh, is this why
3: I'm here? You have complaints. <laughs> that's right.
1: <laughs> that's right. I've got a list. They're actually all standing outside. They're going to come in one by one and, and make you uh, explain this. No, mm-hmm. seriously. i uh, the lists, as I'm sure you know. Mm-hmm. Like they matter. They weigh on people. They matter psychologically and financially, and all of these things. And I wonder how you guys decide.
3: Well the lists there's a list that the book review puts out that's just arranged by their editors and yeah. then the daily critics Dwight Garner, Jennifer Salai, and I each have our top 10 the top 10 books of all the ones we've reviewed
1: But you were at the book review for a while so you was at the book review for a while yeah You've listed in many ways I've
3: listed in all kinds of ways So <laughs> the ways that the editors do it is actually maybe a little bit more interesting the way that than the way that I'm doing it right now is they read a ton of books and they sit together and they argue and alliances are formed, you know, I'm sure there's some trading back and forth, but they really pull together, and I think it's five nonfiction and five fiction, they pull together books that they think are the most exceptional books of the year. For us, for the Daily Critics, a lot of this process is very internal because it, it really is just what I've read and liked and what has stayed with me. But I end up do asking the same question myself that we used to ask as a collective when I was an editor was, what does best mean? Yeah. You know, how do you define that? Like, is it—is it something that is just a matter of execution? Is it something that's lingered with you? Is it something that has made a difference or is just so original? So you, you end up asking these kinds of questions, which are at the heart of how I do my job every week, which is to sort of really ask myself every single time, is this a good book? What does it mean to be a good book? What does it mean that this is working?
1: On this mm. list of questions here yeah. is literally like, what makes something good?
3: Yeah, so, so dumb questions. really. No, no, no.
1: <laughs> yes, no, but embarrassingly is, no, dumb <laughs> questions. But I, 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 let's no. start with best no, 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 and but then maybe is, we can move to good.
3: It's not, it's not a dumb question. I think this is the kind of stuff, like the criticism I really enjoy reading and the kind of criticism I try to write is something that involves a lot of unpacking of those adjectives and involves a lot of thinking on the page to say, so some of the questions I ask when I'm reviewing a book are, okay, so what what was the author's intention? What did the author achieve? How did they achieve it? And how does it matter whether the book has achieved its sort of promises or not? Can it be good despite it? Bad books can ask Amazing, interesting questions produce incredibly interesting aesthetic effects. So as a critic and as a reader of a lot of criticism, I'm really interested in reviews that open up this kind of space in which there is no such thing as a good book that floats above it. It's constantly being interrogated.
1: So are you saying that you grade them on a curve of what their own ambition was?
3: Mm, No, I don't grade them at all. I I minister to them. (laughs) (laughs) I sit with them. I, I I try to merge with them. Um, I don't grade them in any sense, but I do really try to understand why the author has come to the subject, what they set out to do on the page. And sometimes, if you sit with a book long enough or if you know an author well enough, sometimes you think, are there intentions that the author didn't even know they had? You know, texts are very mysterious. There are all kinds of things secreted in them that I think surprise all of us we all have had this experience where we write something and we come to it later and we're shocked we're like how did I know this you know this was somehow wiser than I am or this had intuitions that I didn't know I possessed at the time so I think you're constantly alert to whatever is happening and this isn't to say that I abdicate the job of the critic which is to say you know should you read this right like and does it achieve certain aims absolutely but my inclinations are so much I think maybe a little eccentric in the sense that I'm interested in the way that texts can be like people, you know, they can falter, they can fumble, they can have secrets from themselves, they can be very flawed and very, very beautiful and very, very noble. All of these adjectives, I think, are more interesting to me than good or best, even.
1: Wait, so what's best?
3: (laughs) What is best? Okay, if you're going to really, you know, corner me here, but... um, Well, you're going to put out a list, right? Yeah, you know, ostensibly. But uh, I think for me... Is it
1: going to be like the 10 books I merged with this year?
3: (laughs) Oh, God forbid. But yet, yet, actually, like, you know, jokes aside, yes, I did merge with these books. And uh, I did feel that what made them so singular is that all of the books this year, it may not be every year, but this year I really, really, really felt that each book was really thinking about its form. The novels are really thinking about their form. The nonfiction, books about reportage, are really thinking about how do I do this? What are the conventions of this genre? How can they be broken? Should they be broken? Should they be expanded? And each one created some new space to tell a particular story. And a lot of the stories they were telling felt new. They felt like a lot of these books were writing into particular silences. And that, I think, for me, that ambition is always very exciting to see.
1: Do you think that your interest in newness is something about 2019 or, like, where you happen to be right now?
3: No, I think my my interest in newness is is just... um,
1: Or is it, like, perpetual?
3: I think it's perpetual. I think it's part of, I mean, if you want to write criticism, and if you're even interested in in reading a lot of criticism, I think you're interested in, in a certain kind of alertness and sensitivity to things. I think you're interested in, in writers that are kind of like an antennae. And if you write criticism, you're interested really in, in that constant feeling of being moved by a text, awoken by a text, pissed off, turned on all of these things, you want to be jolted, you know, uh, and I think for me, This year, but also just in generally, I'm I'm interested in things in texts and people that are somewhat truant, you know, Uh, seditious, who who sort of have their own agendas and who are kind of disobedient. I think I always like things like this. And this isn't to say that, you know, I, I will sit down and read a beautifully told conventional novel or, you know, a piece of narrative nonfiction that is elegant and responsible and sturdy, and I will admire it. But critics have biases, and this is one of mine. Like, I like things that are kind of always figuring out how to unravel this form and, and make it to suit some other set of purposes. Is that
1: something you think about a lot, that uh, you look for, like, the same qualities in text that you do in people?
3: I mean, I think it's something that I've thought of more and more as I've been doing this kind of work and seeing more texts and stop seeing people. So (laughs) in my my abject loneliness as a critic, I mean, I think I definitely think about bias a lot because I think the nice part of my job, one of the nice parts is in getting to review as often as I do every week. I really do think about where the borders of my own taste are and how do you read outside of it? Mm -hmm. Because I serve a reader. You know, I'm not writing these pieces for myself. I'm writing it. For an imagined readership, and I'm trying to write about books that they would be interested in, even if it's nothing for me. You know,
1: who's they in your mind?
3: Oh, I mean, I mean, I I do think of like a general reader, but at the same time, I think I'm my first reader, so I think I'm very much part of it. I'm very much part of, you know, when I'm writing something and it's a genre that I don't really know a lot about, or it's something that. Maybe on some level I haven't really respected or really gotten or, you know, mildly disparaged. I do put myself in that position of like, what if this is a genre I really cared about and somebody is swooping in here to sort of now pronounce? You know, so I think that that sort of imagining a group of readers that remind me of myself and are proprietary about books they love, kind of overly sensitive, possessive, argumentative, (laughs) helps to keep me honest in a certain sense.
1: Okay, let's just stay with let's stay with lists for one more second. <laughs> this is what the people want, you know? I also am thinking about a reader or a listener in this case. Uh, they care about the lists. So uh, a question I have is, uh, do you care about the lists? Like, you have to do this thing at the end of the year. Is it drudgery? Is it like a downside of the gig, but you got to do it? Or is it actually something that is meaningful to you? Oh,
3: I love it. I love it. I feel like you know, there's so many books published, and we review them and we can review them very affectionately. We can review them with a great deal of awe. But things go missing, and I think that when you get a chance to bring back something and make a case for it again, that feels very exciting. And I think it's also just um, that whole process that even you and I are talking about, and as I'm trying to skirt your questions, but that kind of thing feels very good for my own thinking to think about at the end of the year, you know, what books? If I can make one more plug or, or, or really, like, ensure that this book can have a little bit more of a life in my own limited capacity, yeah, that feels really valuable to me.
1: That's interesting to me, too, because I'm curious about what role the impact your work has plays in your work. Like, you're a book critic for the New York Times. That's the most important place a book can be reviewed. How much do you let yourself think about that?
3: I, I mean, I don't know if I think about it so much in terms of being attached to an institution as much as I think about every book that crosses my desk is maybe four years of somebody's life. That's what weighs on me. And I have about a week, maybe three, four days to read and summon up some opinion and to engage with it. And that, I think, always makes me feel—it it. slows me down. It makes me a little bit more careful, you know. As for being part of the times— It's a really lovely place to write about books in terms of colleagues and and all that. But I do—there's part of me that does miss the proliferation of so many other book sections. Yeah. And, I mean, it's lovely to have that perch, but you also do miss the kind of riotous back and forth that happened before my time. But I imagine, you know, it was happening when there were so many places reviewing books, arguing about books. I mean, not to say there aren't in this particular way, but in terms of daily sections, there, there are not that many anymore
1: good to be at one that still exists, I guess.
3: Knock on wood. <laughs>
1: Knock on all the wood in the studio. <laughs> um, how do you pick what to write about?
3: It's a, it's an overlapping thing of what I'm interested in, my own sort of response to a book. And again, what I think readers are curious about, what readers want to know. And that can be, you know, it's either okay, Salman has a new book out, or there's this book that, you know, is getting some kind of buzz, or there's this book that seems to be really reconfiguring how a discipline has been written about. So, you know, between the two, I have to sort of figure it out.
1: Do you start lots of books and then, like, uh, give up on reviewing them? Or do you, like, when you start, you know?
3: I feel like I'm very decisive. I feel like I can start and I can feel it out pretty quickly with nonfiction. With fiction, it's harder because you can't really get a sense of, an argument or the sort of things that would draw you to nonfiction. You open up, okay, there's an argument. This is the story. This is the prose. This is the way it's building. Fiction, you may read something's placid, 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 and then at the very end something's gonna happen and the, the novel actually arrives there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I read quickly and I'm pretty decisive. So I don't I don't think I agonize so much about what I want to review. You know, um that seems good and healthy. That seems so dangerous. <laughs> I feel like that's too impulsive. Um, but there's also no time. There there are so many books and I get to write frequently enough that I don't feel at the end of the year that, oh, I missed this or I missed that, you know? I, I feel, generally speaking, I got to write about the books that I wanted to write in some form or the other. Sometimes it doesn't take the form of a review, but I can fold it into another piece that comments more broadly on something happening in fiction or something happening in nonfiction, and I can touch on other things.
1: How do you you organize all that? Because going back through your archive at The Times, you can kind of see those Mm -hmm. rhythms a little bit, like at least for the last couple of years, it's like review, 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 uh, sort of like larger trend piece, Mm -hmm. review, Mm -hmm. review. Like... Are you uh are you like doing that thinking over time do you know that those sort of trend pieces are coming how how do you organize your brain I think is the question i'm asking
3: It's very untidy up here I don't know if there's much organization but i do feel that it's a matter of of starting to notice starting to feel that prickly feeling of like okay so this is something that's that's happening i mean a few years ago i wrote something about the, the great debates happening about you know the artist versus parent thing that was cropping up or You know, this year I wrote something about there are a bunch of memoirs, especially written by black writers, that are written as letters, you know? So sometimes it's somebody will bring the idea to me. Sometimes it'll be something that I'm noticing. I wrote something about how fiction is handling me too in ways that feel so interesting and complex and full of all the kind of ambivalences and ambiguities that are just missing in other places. So yeah, it's a matter of just like reading a lot and then starting to, pick up patterns or sometimes even it's a question you know the question will precede the piece like i wonder is fiction doing something (laughs) right you know it must be it should be and then suddenly you look around and you're like oh here's susan Choi, and here's this book and this book and you find a way to sort of answer some of those questions
1: do you go into the office who do you talk to about this stuff
3: i go into the office very occasionally i talk to my editor um I'm just with my books. I know this is going to sound... I mean, I, I, occasionally I will talk to other people no, at, at the like, times. No, that's but like, like my fantasy of what yeah, your day I, is like. I feel like I, I have a small room in my house that's full of my books and it resembles my brain in that there's no order at all. And I think uh, just in the course of a day and you're sort of moving between one book to the other. And and also I think getting to write in a newspaper is a very lucky thing because you're always um, looking around and seeing where your piece is fitting into a larger narrative of what is considered news, right? And I write about books, I review books, but in a sense, to do my job at a newspaper also puts that pressure on a piece to say, why should you read or care about this? You know, you're also trying to tweeze out what is newsworthy, what is interesting, what is vital about this book. It could be a novel, it could be a memoir, but you're having to sort of write with that sense of discipline. And I think seeing my piece and, you know, looking at what's happening in the international section, what's happening in style, kind of does keep me thinking about, well, what am I doing in my corner of the world that is also touching on these, mm-hmm. these stories and these kinds of valences?
1: So you're like um sort of like distant satellite.
3: I was going to say termite, but satellite <laughs> is like, <laughs> just like gnawing my way through papers <laughs> and, and the newspaper. But satellite is so much more noble. I will happily take that.
1: Are you as um, decisive with what you think about a book as you are about choosing whether or not you're going to no. read it? No, no. How does that no, work?
3: No, no. That gets sorted out as you're doing the review. And I like reviews where you, you, you sort of are on this journey with a critic, watching them think. Virginia Woolf calls essays the theater of the mind. And I think that, for me, what makes criticism... So exciting, and criticism in a paper, particularly so exciting, is that you get to see somebody think in real time. You get to see, best case scenario, you get to see somebody bring you this book and then sort of give you a tiny bit of summary maybe, and then start to unspool and say, okay, this is what I felt, this is what I think is happening, this is the effect, how is it being created? This character feels real. Why should that matter that that character feels real? What does real now mean anyway? And that kind of stuff, as you're sifting through it, and you're staging an argument also for the reader, in that space, I feel like as I'm writing and thinking, then the kind of critical judgment begins to emerge.
1: So you're you're sort of like figuring out what you think. As you write.
3: Yeah, I think that I only think when I'm writing. I think it just goes blank when I'm not writing.
1: <laughs> like you're not taking like a... no, I, take notes. I take
3: notes and I'm like in the margins and it's just like, you know, all my gormless checks and, you know, um, sad faces and all that's happening there. But... Wait, you use sad faces? <laughs> all kinds of embarrassing marginalia, but... Tell me about it. No,
1: but I want to know how you okay, do it. I job. mean, I,
3: I talk a lot back to the book in the margins, okay. you know, um, there's definitely a lot of... I mean, it's stuff. Some some of it, I'm flagging it for myself. But there is also a real way that, yeah, you're reading this book and you're reacting to it constantly. You know, um, yeah. I'm not going to give you any more embarrassing stories about you know, <laughs> <laughs> no. but yeah. But it's I mean, like it's happening. You're definitely feeling this sense of like, I love this, I hate this. But then the bigger question is why? 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 Why does this work on me and this is not working on me? I mean, I've read the book once. I'll go back and read it again if I can. I'll read as much about the author as I can. I'll read the other books. I'll try to find if something isn't working, is that something that the author always do- has done and is part of the effect that they're interested in? Mm-hmm. And I just don't understand, you know? And this isn't, these aren't like the questions, I think, born of any form of like insecurity. I think these are the questions really that are trying to surface how writing does what it does, how it's producing these effects on us. And that's the stuff I feel like I keep coming back to, which is that question of not yes or no, but how.
1: Are the effects what makes something good? Here's what I ask. I listen to like mm. uh, some interviews you've done. Um, many times throughout these things, you'll, you'll be like, this was good. Mm. And I realized as I was listening to you that I didn't actually know what that meant. Mm. Mm. Is that what that means? Just that it like um, stirs something up in you?
3: But it stirs something up. Sure, sure, it can stir something up, but I think that the reasons it stirs something up and in the service of why it's stirring me up is what makes it really interesting, Mm -hmm. right? Like, you can read a book with, like, a beautifully created, beautifully written character and you can be like, but, you know, what are the stakes? This is fantastic. Or there's some sharp dialogue, but the whole thing has to come together and mean something, Mm -hmm. you know? Advance something. It has to, um, so I think that's what it is. I don't think it's just, like, something is, like, I'm just purring because something is pleasing in that sense. But I think that there's a set of arguments or concerns or there's a reason that these kinds of characters have been brought together to stage something. And that, for me, starts to feel exciting when you start to say, why?
1: What's the hard part of your job?
3: Hard part is hard part is, it's the pace, you know? I think everybody wants more time and more space to write, you know? And I think that I have about 800 to... 1100 words that's not a lot of room it's really not a lot of room to sort of swoop in you know describe a book get into some of the kinds of questions that i like to get into more (laughs) philosophically about fiction and again sometimes like situated if like there are other things that are happening in the world things are happening other places that are touching on some of these themes and then you got you have to like get the hell out like I, (laughs) i feel sometimes like a burglar in these pieces like i'm in and i'm looking around i'm like i have to get out of here How? (laughs) You have to case it a little bit. You're like, where is my point of exit? Yeah. You know? Um, And I think also another thing that's difficult is that when you're working in a form that's small and that contained, and that can feel kind of like a sonnet, it can start to feel—you can develop moves in it that I'm very wary of. You know? You don't want it to become formulaic.
1: Gia Tolentino came on the show Right before her book came out, and we were she was anticipating all of these reviews, and uh, and she like broke down the formula, like there has to be a but sentence in which like the well the, she broke
3: down the formula of bad reviews, yes. you know, um, and lazy reviews of which there are many, and listless reviews, and like everybody knows that, like so there's like some kind of mealy mouth criticism, and yet you know the book is everybody knows that like one kind of pirouette yeah, right yeah, at, the, yeah. at the end of the review, so yeah I think being conscious of of how our brains are being taught to move in particular spaces, I think is something that is challenging. And like, I try to write long. I try to do different things. I try to keep it not feeling like something that has to adhere to that particular, or it can sort of like reflexively become that kind of formula.
1: Especially when you're doing it week after week after week after week. Oh my God, yeah. How do you avoid um, not like going back to the same linguistic devices or just like ticks in your own writing?
3: Totally. But like also the thing about this is that you don't want to have ticks, You don't want to go back to devices. But all writers are bound by certain obsessions and preoccupations, you know? We're not, we're not like this panoptic brain that sees everything. We we are, we move according to particular axes, <laughs> and that's also fine. And that's something, you know, when I read critics that I love, I love knowing, I love that intimation. I'm like, oh, it's this critic on this. But I wonder, they're going to love this, mm-hmm. and they're going to love this, and I'm, they're going to explain why they love it. And there's also particular satisfaction of knowing that that particular reader well. So I don't want to be too frightened of moving in particular channels and being drawn to certain things again and again. But I do try to write reviews thinking of the shape of a review a lot and trying to think of it as its own particular problem, you know, and how to make it feel a little bit different for me each time. And to set myself little, I do like little like formal things, you know, little ways that I want to make it feel different to me each week.
1: Like what? What's an example of that?
3: Well, sometimes I will try to open up with like, some other just general questions about writing or writers, you know, and then from that extrapolate and move into the review. Some weeks I'm really interested in looking at all the other kinds of books that have done what this book is trying to do. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'm interested in wondering if I can smuggle in a little op eddy kind of feeling about reading now or writers now, you know. Yeah. There's And the books also invite that. Every book, when you spend time with it, is so different and does make you feel different when you've been locked in that writer's prose and locked in their brain. And especially like, I do a lot of research or as much as is possible. And so you spend so much time, you're steeping in one particular writer's sensibility or in a particular genre. And it does something to you, you know, it does something to your prose, it does something to the kinds of questions you're asking. And I think that if you have enough time and space, yeah, you do get sort of seduced along with that. And you can make something that stands adjacent to it.
1: To continue to use um, the word you did at the beginning, do you like merge in this way in other things in your life or is it just books?
3: I mean, do I merge with... I I don't think I respond to anything the way I do books. I don't think I have that kind of relationship with anything else.
1: Has it always been that way? Always,
3: always. Like there's just, you know, I mean, I consume a lot of different kinds of culture and do a lot of things, but there's a very particular relationship I have with, I think reading and language that has always just been above anything else. What a sweet gig. <laughs> what else would I could have what could I have done? <laughs> I'll be out there fruitlessly trying to merge with other things.
1: <laughs> does it feel like uh, does it feel like work?
3: God, I mean there are definitely weeks where it's you know, it's a book if I'm reluctant to do it, or you know, those are less pleasant. But no, it doesn't feel like work. And I but I feel so I feel so shy about saying that. That feels very lucky. And it is a lucky thing. I think that um, it
1: can be lucky and deserved.
3: Uh, yeah, I mean, it's definitely lucky. And uh, I think that for me, that kind of, but I don't know if it's just me. I think that a lot of us, that kind of analysis, that kind of work of critical thinking, we do it all the time. Half our interactions with other people are criticism of ourselves or other people. Like yeah. there's like a very human act of sifting, refining, thinking, commenting at the heart of this work. And I think that for me, it just, it happens to be in that one zone that's always felt... Uh, I felt very powerfully about it and always felt very secret. So I think to be able to do it in this particular way in public feels very interesting. Secret how? Secret. Well, I was a big autodidact and I was small, and I I think I just self-educated myself in a lot of ways. And But apart from that, I think that reading is something we do alone. We do it at night. We do it in bed. There's a very. Di- it's a different thing. It's not like other forms of... Pleasure or culture, we go out and we do it with other people. Like there is something very private about it, and I think that there's something very, something very beautifully antisocial about it. And I think in that way, and I'm still somebody oh, I can't really read sitting up. You know, I can't really read when other people are around. It's something that really has to happen.
1: Just so I got right, you're basically just lying down all day.
3: I am supine, <laughs> constantly <laughs> supine or prone. It's it's ridiculous. Um, but I think in that sense, like that kind of relationship that all of us have towards reading and the fact that we co-create something. Like when you go to a movie, you're seeing something that somebody's put up for you. When you read, you're doing all of that alone. You're populating the stage set. You're saying with some guidance what a character looks like. And when we do that, we're remembering. We're not inventing. We're drawing from what we've known, you know? So I think that there is that element of intense intimacy that people have when they read. And I think that to get to sort of do that thinking and sifting and all the time feels just, yeah, it feels incredibly lucky.
1: And you've always done that. Like, that that was your experience with books, even when you didn't have to write something for oh, yeah. tons of people to read. Oh, yeah.
3: Yeah. I think, you know, in, in the beginning, like, I wanted to do something with books and language, and I wasn't sure. And I was like, oh, God, maybe I'll maybe I'll write a novel. Isn't that what people do who care about books? And I was so, I was abysmal at it. I was horrible at it. And What was it about? Um... Oh my God. It was about, uh, I think it was about, you know, somebody who, a young woman who really liked reading while lying down. <laughs> I, I, I'm not shitting I'm not, I'm not yeah. you. I think that's what it was. And, uh, and then I realized as I was thinking about this, that what I loved about writing, wasn't creating fiction, but it was all the stuff that happened around the book. It was all the conversations that happened next to it and on top of it. All that higher gossip, which is criticism, which is why does this book matter? What happens in this book? Who is this character? What tradition does she belong to? You know, That's the stuff that I started to find when it actually came to writing, that not only did I Enjoy more, but I had some, I had some aptitude for. it, Thank God.
1: <laughs> when was this in your life
3: that you uh, were dabbling in fiction and realizing? Dabbling in the dark arts. I was doing an MFA. Um,
1: yeah, I read somewhere that like the first thing you wrote was, was to for... apply to the MFA. <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> but this is this is uh, this is testament to my incredible laziness. How's that my true? It's my desire to read, not write. Because um, I hadn't, I had no background in writing or in literature or media, any, anything like this. You know, I came from good Indian stock of chemical engineers. (laughs) Those were my people. Um, What what do uh, your folks think of what you're doing? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's a different world from them. I'm sure they feel, you know, um, happy that I'm shod and clothed. (laughs) And uh, that's enough. Um, But yeah, I wanted something to do with language. And I was working in India and I was working... And this like dodgy UN scheme, and, and, what the which UN actually scheme should is? be a novel. That should be the novel. Some kind of rural development. Two more frightening words have never been paired. <laughs> and I was a terrible employee. And I was.
1: What was your job?
3: I was napping, and uh, <laughs> and, so fine. And, and I was supine so again. <laughs> and I think I would like noisily move files from one end of the office to the other. And and uh, and I was also loafing, and in a way that you could loaf in Delhi in the early aughts. Um, and I started to sort of, and I'd always, I was reading again, I was like trying to figure out something and I had to come back to America because I was from here and I didn't know how and I didn't know what I would do. And I heard of this thing called an MFA and I was like, it sounds kind of like being retired, you know, <laughs> retired with an intense amount of debt. And I was like, I can go and I can read and maybe I will be amazing at writing novels. Who knows? Life is surprising. And, and uh And for me, it was a fantastic thing. I mean, crippling debt, crippling debt. But um, (laughs) just to get also caught up in what other people were reading. My own reading was older and strange and sort of not very programmatic and sort of like just appetite and what was around and what I could sort of filch. And to sort of come to a program and just learn about literary fashions and to be around other people that read. And it was just a a very... um, yeah it was it was an interesting thing. Um, what do you mean filched? stole? <laughs> no, I know what the word means. <laughs> oh, I was a horrible book thief when I was small, mainly for my mother. and and you know, my boom and my family had these incredible libraries full of books that you know we weren't allowed to touch. And really? yeah, I you know there were they were just um full of books that were ahead of our time, thank god. and uh, and so it was like a really uh, delightful game for all of us to sort of steal and pass around these books. and um, but yeah, that's the whole thing that it's always felt illicit. It's always felt illicit. It's always felt like that's something that... That's like a crazy parenting move. <laughs> if you want your kids to read, ban the books. Yeah, <laughs> it
1: was very effective. But it where, was like, Where um, do you think your mom was coming from and not wanting you to read those books?
3: I think so. I, I come from partition era refugees, the partition of Indian Pakistan. And so this was like um, a group of people and coming out of any historical trauma, as I'm sure you can imagine, were incredibly frantic about their children and frantic about what's going to happen and will we be able to survive and there's danger coming and you have to work, you have to study. There's no time for anything frivolous. And I think that I just grew up with like that kind of constant anxiety and fear and just channeling us into this particular direction that, yeah, I think that books were the first sort of and very potent source of rebellion. (laughs) So, yeah, there was no aspect of it that felt like spinach or anything that I had to do. No, it was all like, you know, I spent 10 years of my life with a book hidden in the back of my pants, you know? <laughs> that my sister would like pat me on the back and say, What's, what, what is that? <laughs> really? And I'd be like, it's fear of flying. <laughs> <laughs> but so that's, yeah, those are the sort of, I think, strains that I still feel, yeah, that I still feel even doing this as a job, thinking in public, doing it, you know, that has never sort of fully left, that feeling that it's it's private and it's somewhat... It's got what people don't want you to know, you know? Like no, it's I don't got know what the real but it's got it's 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 where the real knowledge is, it's where the action is, you know? I have always had that feeling that especially in fiction, like those are those are the kinds of truths that are heretical and challenging and a bit dangerous and and not obvious and stranger and they still live there for me, I think.
1: Hmm. Was there a moment where you um sort of like decided or announced that you were gonna go into chemical engineering? <laughs> Oh,
3: my God. They would have been so pleased. No, no, no. I had no aptitude for anything like this. They they didn't even dare dream <laughs> that such a life would be possible for
1: me. So you went to uh, – you got the MFA. Mm-hmm. And then what happened?
3: And then I got a job. I got a job at Publishers Weekly, which is a trade magazine reviewing books. And, yeah, for years I would write criticism on the side. And I had a number of jobs doing different kinds of book coverage. I worked at PW, I worked at NPR, then I came to the Times working as an editor at the book review, and it was somehow balancing both. Like, the necessity of the day job was very, very serious for me, you know. um, I didn't fully think that I could or even wanted to put that pressure on writing or criticism, you know. I I didn't know how that could translate into something that could be financially viable. So it was always something that I was doing on the side. And what were the the day jobs? Editing and... um, Editing and also learning something about the business, especially when I was at Publishers Weekly, just to get a sense of, like, the economy of the book world, you know, which is something that critics don't really think about. They don't really think about or know or interest themselves sometimes in some of those aspects. And it was a good education to sort of, like, learn about.
1: Do you think Um, the critics willfully don't know or? uh, I think it's too depressing.
3: (laughs) I think it's way too depressing. I mean, it's also there's enough to say about the books and there's enough to do, but I think that... It was helpful for me to come out of an MFA where a certain kind of relationship with writers and reading is so rarefied and made so kind of glamorous and lofty. And then to go to a place and say, well, actually, it's these books that are going to pay for all of the other books that get the kind of highbrow attention and and all of this sort of stuff.
1: How does that inform your work now?
3: I don't know if it does. I don't know if it does. I just felt grateful to know about it. I felt grateful to have some sort of sense of, of actually how that world worked.
1: And when when was that publisher weekly weekly? It was
3: oh god, I think it was like I have no mind for numbers. This is why my gorgeous chemical engineering job never materialized. <laughs> but I think it was around two thousand six, so like two thousand seven. Just pre-crash. pre crash. Yeah, it was like, oh god, yes. And uh, I had the, I mean, all my jobs were like in that kind of strange era. And I used to work in this. Um, line of cubicles at Publishers Weekly and one by one every single person was laid off except for me because I was a temp in the beginning <laughs> so but I mean for years like I'd go from one job to another in book world and I would never unpack I would never get comfortable mm-hmm. you know because it always felt like something it's, it's going to dry up it's going to vanish and do you still feel that way um, do I feel... No, you know, actually, but I don't know why I'm feeling so optimistic. I don't trust it. But I'm feeling very optimistic <laughs> these days. About yourself or about books? No, never about myself, but about books. <laughs> I think that in the last couple of months, you know, I've we've seen the sort of, like, resurgence, it feels like, of a lot of places that are writing about books, whether it's the New Republic, the New York Review of Books has, like, new editors. You see um, The Atlantic, you see Harper. You just see a lot of places that are doing a lot of deep, interesting Writing about books, and I mean, that's felt very heartening, I think, to me.
1: All right, so you you have this experience, sort of, in the book business. I've always been a little confused by like the book industry because it feels to me like it's um, the stakes with books feel so high to the writers and so low to the publishers. To me, often, and that that gap feels perilous, like. the model of the book industry is place 100 bets to pay off for the other 98. And from a writer's standpoint, it's like bet four years of your life. Every every 100 or maybe like 95 of the 100 or whatever. Five of them are dashed off. But like that gap has always felt tricky to me and kind of um, weirdly unspoken. And And now you are in a way sort of like right in the middle of that gap where you are in a position to greatly affect both the emotional (laughs) aspect and the business aspect uh, of this book. And I wonder how that feels.
3: Yeah, I I don't know if I... I think that writers would like us to live in that gap, right? But I don't think we live in that gap between the industry and the writer in that particular way. In fact, I feel like because writers feel so unmoored and some of them feel unsupported by their publishing as all this stuff happens like there's this pressure on book coverage i think yeah to come through and to provide that save like save the day right and like and that should be to use a hindu word, our dharm you know like our sacred duty and I, I i don't i don't see my job functioning that way i think that that way of thinking actually is responsible for producing an incredible amount of listless book writing and criticism and so I think for me it's like I serve the reader, I serve the reader, and I serve not to sound like too grand, but I think I serve literature. I serve what is sound is good. Grand. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> but I, you know, you, you serve what what should last. I mean, and that's the sort of thing that I think fundamentally, you know, um, you do lose a lot of trust with the readers if they can feel you adjacent to the publishing machine. Mm-hmm. You know. And just praising it because every book is somehow worthy or every book is... And that's, I don't know. That's not my... My job is, I think, to is to be honest with the reader and to uh, sort of keep surfacing new ways for me and for other people to think about books, new vocabularies of pleasure and disgust. You
1: know? <laughs> Let's talk about disgust for a mm, second. It's mm-hmm. scrolling through your archive. Mm. There are not a lot of uh, sort of salacious takedowns. There are some like negative reviews or books you're writing about that you have pretty significant problems with. But I didn't find anything that felt to me like uh, Pete Wells writing about that steakhouse.
3: Mm. Hmm.
1: Well, is Peter Luger's, that's what he wrote about? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's just vicious, like a vicious yeah. takedown. yeah. Here's what I'm saying. Sometimes you read a review, it seems like the critic is having fun shitting on something. Like they've chosen something to shit on and they're having fun, and it's fun to read. It's a good time. They get passed around a bunch. I didn't find anything like that in your archive. And I'm, I'm
3: gleeful dismembering of of books. That's yeah, such a better yeah. way. <laughs> those are, That's a
1: better collection of words to describe what I'm talking uh, about.
3: Um, I don't think I enjoy, or it maybe just doesn't come naturally, that particular mode. When I don't like a book, I'm really interested in why it's not working, and I'm really interested in and especially morally why it's not working and, and why it matters. But I think that that kind of riffy takedown, it also just belongs to a different genre of writing, you know, um, and a different kind of criticism. I feel like for me, it's it's not the riff that I'm really interested in, even though I love reading critics who do that. I think for me, it's, it's really like, it's the argument. It's like, okay, this doesn't work. This book is not good or whatever. Something is not working. Why isn't it working? What would it mean if it worked in this particular way? What does it mean about the novel that it's failing in these particular things? Like, I think that's just the way that I'm oriented, you know? Yeah. Although I love reading critics who work in, in both in both disciplines. Do you know a lot of these people that you write about? No. No. That, like the writers that I... Yeah. No, 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 no. I try not to... Um, I'm not friends with a whole bunch of writers. Um, And I definitely, just in terms of conflicts and stuff like that, no, I would never... I would never write a review of anybody I felt close to or even know very well or even my I'm trying to think of like what's the closest I've ever gotten to anybody that I've written about, but it's really no. I'm, I, I have to be careful, and I think, I think this is like the general rule at the times also, yeah. but I think just even my own sort of personality-wise, exp- I don't think I could do it.
1: My experience of that world is just that it's small.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Does it take work to not be friends with people? <laughs> <laughs> well, my personality helps. No, no, no. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> Yeah, it does take work, you know, and it does take work, especially if you've been doing this, you know, a while and you get invited places yeah, and I mean, stuff like of, that. Yeah, I think I'm kind and of like,
1: asking, like, uh, you know, like the restaurant critic who, yeah. like, uh, uses a fake name for reservations. Like, is there a version of that in book writing? No. You just but, stay home No, but no, no, answer. no.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't – but I think also – I'm interested if it's a writer. I'm interested in their work. I'm very rarely interested in them or knowing them or meeting them, even if it's a book I love, even if it's a book I worship. I'm never interested in the person. I'm interested in in what they're doing on the page. I'm interested in their next book. But, yeah, you do have to be careful because you want to be honest. You don't want to feel like you're pulling your punches. You don't want to feel anxious about these things. Do you
1: ever feel that way? Like do you ever feel like you're um, being nice?
3: I think the only time I can feel myself feeling a little bit anxious and – perhaps being a little bit more gentle than is warranted is if it's a first novel, if it's a book that, or it's like a book of poems and I don't love it, you know, those kinds of things where, you know, would somebody have heard of it if I'm not reviewing it and panning it? Those are the moments. But generally speaking, if I can feel myself shrinking a little bit, you know, then I have to ask why and I have to fix it because that's not that doesn't serve the reader and that doesn't serve me and that doesn't serve the kind of piece that I think would have that's worth reading.
1: Help me understand that so like if you feel yourself shrinking does that mean you just like select that previous paragraph and delete it or does it mean like
3: uh,
1: you're like maybe this isn't the book for me?
3: Or you stage that moment in the review you know you can put that like I had to review a book by an author I love and he wrote this terrible novel this year and I was trying to write this review and I was trying to write around the fact that it wasn't working and then started to ask a little bit about, you know, what does it mean to love this writer and have this writer exemplify all of these things for, for readers. And this writer is very rare in, in a lot of ways. Um, and then to ask why this book isn't working and then to f- figure out, you know, it's interesting why it wasn't working. But it was a very strange book. And the, and the book itself was I was reading and I was like, "This is it's not just a bad book, it's a a peculiar book. The book was acting like a grieving person. Like it was odd and compulsive and it kept repeating things the way when you're grieving, you're just, you don't really seem to know where you are in time and space. And then it would kind of peter off and then it would start again and then it would repeat the same scene. And it was just bizarre and it wasn't trying to do these things as far as I could tell. And so in the course of the review, I was sort of trying to think about why and, and trying to also figure out like, you know, it doesn't feel good to sort of bring down this, this particular book by a writer who's going to go on, I, I think, and do other excellent work. And, but then to ask why this book wasn't working was so interesting, and it was so fruitful. This writer is, writes absurdist fiction and lives in Pakistan, and in recent years has been writing a lot about how do I continue writing this kind of fiction when I live in a place that defies parody, you know? And so what I felt I was reading about and what I tried to write about is you're reading about somebody who's grieving, not only as this Pakistani writer who's seen his writer colleagues get gunned down in the streets and all these things are happening, but he's also coming to the end of a form. And I felt like when I was able to look at it and try to understand that, and not to pronounce, who am I to say this, but to suggest this is the way that I read it, this is one way to read this text, and it's also a way you can read a text, that felt to me useful Mm -hmm. and interesting, for me at least.
1: And that's the goal.
3: I think to be useful, absolutely to be useful and not to be boring. I think are very difficult things in this life. <laughs> but if you can achieve them on the page or off the page, you know.
1: Do you think your uh, your hit rate is as high off the page as it is on the page?
3: <laughs> to be useful, I'm definitely not useful. To be useful and not boring. <laughs> uh, I think I'm diverting. I'm definitely not useful, functionally helpless. But as we discussed, but but yeah, I think that those are really. Interesting, important things. And I think also because, you know, we're writing in a time when I'm at least very conscious of, I imagine other tabs open on my reader's computer. I imagine that. And I know how quickly we flit from one thing to another. And so to be able to keep the reader with you is something, especially as a critic, especially as somebody who has taken it upon themselves to tell you what's worth reading, Mm -hmm. Our job is to keep you reading us, first of all, you know, and to demonstrate that we have any legs to stand on, any authority to be pronouncing on somebody else. I think um, really does, at least for me, govern how I think about what my prose is supposed to do on that page anyway.
1: How do you get better at your job?
3: That's a really good question. You study. You study a lot. You read as much as you can. You keep reading a lot of criticism. You, And then this is, like, is going to sound a little like, I don't know just moist, I'm afraid. But like, you have to figure out ways, or at least I have to figure out ways to stay sensitive, to not be dulled into thinking like, okay, here's another novel. Here's another sentence. I start sentences all day. How do you refresh that feeling, that excitement? Painters used to have this thing that I think it's like a mirror that was painted black. And they used to look at that to refresh their eyes. And I think about that a lot. I was like, I wish sometimes I had a way to sort of refresh that sort of instinct to me you are your own apparatus right like how things are going to play on you becomes this piece that you create so I do think about um, what does that mean to sort of rest and be fallow and and to go to a book again every single time with that kind of readiness for surprise and not to feel jaded not to feel how do you do that you have to keep thinking about it you have to keep thinking about it and you have to walk away step away from books you have to come back to it I mean this is a really interesting week that we're talking I mean this week two sort of Critics who were institutions died, John Simon, the theater critic, and Clive James. And there's been a lot of talk about both of them, right? And there's been a lot of talk about, I mean, they both had, they lived very, very long lives. And there's been this outpouring of of sort of appreciation for Clive James, who was a sort of polymathic, very funny writer who could write about everything, TV, books. And there's been a lot of grappling with John Simon's legacy as somebody who was incredibly misogynist and homophobic on and off the page. And lots of conversations have been happening about what does it mean to do this work for a long time? Does it, does it make you sour? Can it make you claustrophobic? Can it, can you, do you go to these things to listen to other people and only end up listening to yourself, you know? And uh, so these are the things that you have to think about. And again, it goes back to this idea that we were talking about before of just even learning your own moves and just, trying to remember all the time to sort of shake it off and, and find ways to come back to the prose, come to the book, think of the reader again with that feeling of freshness.
1: But how do you do that? <laughs> oh, my
3: God. dogged. Um, I don't know. It, it's, it's, you walk, you read, you write a cranky review, and you have to look at it again and to be like, is this merited, mm-hmm. you know? You have to be a really good reader of your own work. And you have to be as harsh on your own work as you are on other people's work, I think. You have to really read yourself. Yeah, I think that's that's it. You have to be very unsparing. This is what I'm learning, I think, with your own prose and your own instincts.
1: I'm very interested in how you keep the sourness away.
3: (laughs) I mean, this is the question that people had about John Simon, right, which is just sort of, did he love theater at the end of the day? Um, And how did Clive James keep the sourness away? He had this interview when he talked about at a certain point, he was just like, I just, I want to give people what I got from books or I got from the arts, which was that, that feeling, that shock of recognition, that shock of how it changed me. That's what I, I want at a certain point. So I think you have to be attentive to the fact. You have to, you have to stay attentive to the fact of, of why you love this form, why you love this medium. And if your frustration or anger even comes out of seeing it ill-used or done badly, that's very different, you know, and that sort of is still on some level about some great, you know, attachment that you have to it, that what it can do, what it once did for you, mm-hmm. you know, these are the sorts of, yeah, I think these are the sorts of ways that you can keep sourness at bay, but now sourness should not be kept too much at bay, because the <laughs> the, the, the sort of, um, you know, the banal, puffy, pleasing stuff serves nobody. You know, so you have to, at the same time, keep sharpened, but not,
1: you know. Keep sharpened, but like uh, in touch with the book that's stuffed in the back of your pants.
3: Oh, my God. (laughs) I told you too much today. (laughs) Always. You're in an interesting
1: and uh, somewhat unique media job. Hmm. Like, people have your job for decades. I guess this connects to the sourness, keeping it at bay staying sharp but like you know you graduate columbia with a bunch of debt bounce around a bunch of gigs according to you God, I, I sound read...
3: like such a winner max <laughs> you are
1: but i mean i don't even buy the part where you're like i didn't think i would ever be able to do something like this yeah, yeah. but uh here you are hmm. you're in the gig
3: hmm.
1: like the last person who left that gig was there for 40 years how do you think about that? Or do you think about that?
3: You know, I don't think about it. I don't think about it. I think about it in terms of, I mean, I think it just, it really helps to not be a planner, Max. <laughs> no, but it doesn't. But it's, I don't think about it in terms of, I feel like also just, I, I I still feel like there's so much that I can do, want to do. And again, I think going back to the fact of like anybody whose career begins in, in 2007, is naturally going to be leery of any notion of of, of growing, you know, old and comfortable in any job. Um, but, uh, no, I, I don't think about, like, what it's going to look like decades from now or how long will I do this. I think it really still is about the the shock of each book, you know, the excitement of each book, of, the, of each list, of uh, seeing even just now, like, just getting in the books from 2020 and just feeling exhilarated and I can't wait, you know, to sink into this or, you know, read that. And I think that that's what I think about. That's what feels immediate and urgent to me right now.
1: You think you'll ever write one yourself?
3: But, oh God, I'd love to. I'd love to. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, I mean, I think just if only to sort of like see what it's like to live and to learn how to how to write a book and live in something of that sort of length. Um, but for right now, the job is... It feels so demanding and, and nourishing that I don't really, I don't know. I'm 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 quite content, but I need to go lie down now. Right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. I'll okay. let you go. Bye bye. I feel like I've le- I've learned a lot uh, about your job. Uh-huh. How were I? we walked in, I, I didn't know anything.
3: <clears throat> no, yeah, thanks I'm, for doing all that research.
1: Fuck off. <laughs> I understand it now better than I did. Uh, I did extensive research. It turns out there's nothing <laughs> on the internet about how it bo- I, we need to keep works.
3: this part. By the way, I don't want I don't want to hear this excised When I listen. <laughs> go on. <laughs>
1: It seems mostly like a job designed in a lab for you. It seems like the per- like a perfect job for you. It seems like a great job. Uh, obviously, I think you're very good at it. It also seems kind of lonely.
3: Hmm. I don't think it's lonely, but I think to do it, you have to have immense stamina and tolerance for solitude. You just do. And I do. So I don't feel lonely, but I do think about it sometimes because you know, you go see a movie, you review a movie, it's a couple of hours, you go back into the world to read a book, and then not only to read that book, because any book that we review, I want to read everything else that person's written. I want to read every review that they've ever gotten. I want to read every review they've written. I want to read their ex-wives books, hopefully, you know, I want to read and sort of um, imbibe as much as I can. And you have small children, you know the life, you know, so it's a lot of this happens at night, you know, when I can have that unbroken span of, of time to do it. And you have to have that capacity and a temperament to sort of be able to do it. And I don't know, I, I feel, I never feel lonely. I, I feel, I feel in the best days, surrounded by the best kind of company.
1: Thank you for doing this. Thanks, thanks. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Piper, and our intern is Marina Clementi. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp and PitWriters, And thanks so much to Paro for coming in. That's uh, it's one of my favorite conversations in a long time. We'll see you next week.